Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm Hugh. And I'm Joshua. You're listening to The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of international news. And there's been a lot going on since our last episode. Against the odds, the Olympics have gone ahead, Kanye's allegedly releasing a new album, but those stories aside, there's some important developments to update you on. And as always, I'm looking forward to getting into it. changing we cannot live in the in the country with the with the first people in the black nation who got independence i want all asians to stand up for the country hugh we're going to go first to haiti and as i'm sure most of our listeners would know the country has been in a state of extreme chaos since its president jovenel moise was assassinated three weeks ago And Moise's brutal murder triggered violence throughout Haiti and a power struggle between three rival prime ministers. But in a piece of good news, it looks like that rivalry may actually have been resolved. Last week, two of the rivals abandoned their claims, allowing Ariel Henry, a neurosurgeon, to become the country's prime minister and acting president. Three rival prime ministers, that's pretty crazy. Uh, Why wasn't there a clear successor to Moise? Well, as we've talked about on the wrap-up before, Haiti's government has been in a really bad state for some time. So first of all, the country actually has two constitutions and no one knows which one to follow. And each constitution has different rules for what happens when a president dies. So for example, the most recent constitution says the prime minister should take charge. But that leads us to a second problem. Haiti hasn't had an elected prime minister for 18 months. There was supposed to be a parliamentary election in January last year, but it was never held. And so a government and a PM were never elected. And to resolve that crisis, Moise, when he was alive, used his presidential powers to appoint interim prime ministers. And he went through them pretty fast. In April this year, he appointed a guy named Claude Joseph as PM. But after three months, Moe said he'd lost faith in Joseph and was going to fire him, appointing Ariel Henri as PM instead. However, two days after Moise made that announcement, he was assassinated and Henri was never sworn in. Sam, let me start with you today. Who exactly is in charge in Haiti right now? Is it interim Prime Minister Claude Joseph? And And that left Haiti with two dueling prime ministers, one who'd just been sacked and another who hadn't been sworn in, both arguing that they were the rightful PM and the acting president. And then to make it even more complicated, the president of Haiti's Senate also started to claim that he was the rightful leader of the country too. Yeah, it all sounds a bit like Game of Thrones. So how did Henri emerge victorious? Well, to cut a long story short, he has some pretty powerful friends in the US and other Western nations. And because these countries give a lot of aid to Haiti, they have a huge say in how Haiti's politics run. And the US lobbied the two other contenders to make way for Henri. And eventually, after even nearly a military coup, they finally did. 
Okay, so now Haiti has a prime minister. Will that help calm the chaotic situation? Well, sadly, I think it's actually unlikely. So the country's opposition movement has refused to recognise Henri as the legitimate prime minister. And Henri himself has a track record of authoritarian views. And so there are some fears that his rule could further destabilise Haiti. What's more, his appointment has done little to calm tensions among Moise's supporters. And that became really clear during Moise's state funeral over the weekend. The service was attended by people from across Haiti and even from around the world, including the US and UN ambassadors. While it was supposed to be a solemn event, it was anything but. Gunshots were fired, forcing the US and UN delegations to flee the ceremony after just 15 minutes. Moise's supporters gathered en masse at the site of the ceremony, demanding justice for the murdered president. And then Moise's widow took to the podium herself and gave a fiery speech, telling the crowd that the people who'd arranged her husband's killing were actually there at the funeral and declaring that a war for Haiti was underway. And as I'm sure you can imagine, that only escalated the tension. After the service finished, protesters barricaded the streets, set tyres alight and gangs rampaged throughout Haiti. So it sounds like the president's wife is pretty confident about who killed her husband, but does the international community know who was behind the killing? Yes and no. So we know who actually shot Moise. It was a group of Colombian mercenaries. But we don't know yet who hired them. There's evidence tying a range of people to the assassination, including powerful Haitian businessmen, some ex-politicians, and even some rebel leaders. But This is where it gets really weird. Last week, a Christian pastor in the US was also arrested for helping arrange the killing remotely. Wow. In the midst of all this insanity, ordinary Haitians continue to endure horrific conditions, I'm imagining. Yeah, exactly. So poverty levels are at an all-time high in Haiti. Haiti's powerful gangs have also seized control of some parts of the country. And kidnapping rates, which we spoke about last time, have only increased. There's been stories of school children being abducted and even some pastors and priests being snatched in the middle of their church services. And in that context, I think Moise's death is actually really symbolic for many Haitians. If the president can be assassinated in his own home, then what hope do ordinary Haitians have for justice? And it's hard to see how this problem is going to be resolved anytime soon, given the ongoing political, social and economic turmoil in Haiti. It shows that people who are infected with the Delta variant after receiving the Sinovac vaccine, the symptoms are severe and at the same severity level as people who haven't received any vaccine at all. Joshua, that was the voice of an Indonesian health expert. And as you would have just heard, he was raising concerns about one of China's leading COVID-19 vaccines, Sinovac. You see, Sinovac has been at the center of national strategies to deal with COVID across the world. 
But in the last month, a large number of health experts have begun questioning the vaccine's efficacy in the face of new viral strains. Over in Indonesia, over 350 doctors and medical workers test positive for COVID-19, despite having been inoculated with the Sinovac vaccine. While most of the health- In Indonesia, more than 100 healthcare workers have tragically died from COVID, despite having received the Sinovac vaccine. And that number has even included the doctor who was leading the nation's Sinovac trial. Is the problem just isolated to Indonesia though? Unfortunately not. Even in Thailand, doctors are falling sick after taking the Chinese shot. Earlier this week... Many countries are using Sinovac, with others still using a second Chinese vaccine known as Sinopharm. And a lot of governments who have relied on the Chinese vaccines are now issuing recommendations for their healthcare professionals and other key workers to receive booster shots using other vaccines such as Pfizer and Moderna. And that's because as COVID-19 grows more potent with new strains, the Chinese vaccines are failing to provide the same levels of protection that they did at the start of the rollout. Thailand, Bahrain and the UAE are all recommending booster shots, while in Singapore, the government has actually removed the vaccine from its official vaccination statistics, citing a lack of data about its effectiveness. A lack of data? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's been an issue from the outset of the pandemic. We already know that Chinese vaccine manufacturers have disclosed less safety and testing information than their Western competitors. And this has created a situation where at one stage there were four wildly different estimates of the vaccine's effectiveness running at the same time. However, at this point, there seems to be consensus that the Sinovac shot only offers 51% efficacy against the base virus. And that figure is only one point above the World Health Organization's minimum rate of 50%. And so does this mean that countries are starting to abandon the vaccine? It's very much a case-by-case thing. Costa Rica recently rejected the vaccine, citing a lack of effectiveness. But generally, epidemiologists are still recommending the shot, as 50% efficacy is, of course, better than nothing. Plus, with its huge manufacturing base, China has been able to distribute enormous numbers of vaccines overseas, especially to developing countries which initially were missing out due to vaccine hoarding in Western countries. So many states will be eager to tap into that vast supply nonetheless. But that doesn't mean there hasn't been controversy. We've been given Sinopharm, which is just 52% effective. We're at the cusp of the third wave. Health workers are in ICUs with a high viral load. In Peru, which, like many Latin American countries, has relied heavily on Sinovac, healthcare workers are protesting, demanding a Pfizer booster shot after receiving the Chinese vaccine. And it gets trickier when we consider variants such as Delta, which are more potent than the original virus strain that the Chinese vaccines were designed to beat. Again, we don't have data on the Chinese shots to be sure, but preliminary studies are suggesting that they're 20% less effective against the new strains. Mm, doesn't bode well for global herd immunity. But I'm interested to know, we've talked before on the wrap-up about vaccine diplomacy and about China's efforts there. So how is this affecting China politically? Well, this is going to have a very obvious impact on Chinese vaccine diplomacy, to be sure. Uh, As we've seen with Costa Rica, it's going to be harder to convince new countries to use the shots. But perhaps the biggest risk internationally for China is with the countries that are already using its vaccines. A failure of Chinese vaccination programs in other countries would be profoundly damaging to Chinese prestige and would undermine what had essentially been a quiet victory for Chinese diplomacy. 
The other concern is going to be domestic. As the world begins opening up again, China will now need to address the fact that it has vaccinated its own population with vaccines that are not particularly effective against the new strains. So in one sense, China is going to have as much riding on its vaccines at home as it does abroad. The woman you just heard there was the mother of Angelo Troya, a 25-year-old Cuban who was sentenced to jail in a secret trial just last week. And he wasn't the only one. Over the last fortnight, the Cuban government has rounded up more than 500 of its citizens and detained them in black site prisons. These people are being sentenced to jail in secretive mass trials of up to 30 people at a time, with court hearings taking little more than an hour. And in the case of Angelo Troya, his mother says that she was notified of her son's trial just before it was beginning. And by the time she arrived at the court, it was already over, and Angelo had been sentenced to a year in prison. That's terrible. What was the alleged crime? Well, officially, Troyer was jailed for promoting public disorder. He was charged with that offence after participating in anti-government protests that have rocked Cuba. Thousands of people across 40 cities took to the streets earlier this month, calling for the government's resignation. And I know we talk about protests a fair bit on Global Questions, but what we've seen in Cuba in the last few weeks is actually really unique. You've got to remember that the country is controlled by a highly repressive communist government, and people who speak out are frequently jailed or exiled. So protests rarely occur. In fact, the last time we saw massive anti-government protests in Cuba was in 1994, more than two decades ago. So why are people protesting now? Well, there's a range of reasons. So first of all, Cuba has been experiencing its worst economic crisis since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So some time. That's led to high unemployment rates and inflation. In fact, inflation is so bad that prices are predicted to rise between 500 to 900%. Before the sun comes up, hours before the store even opens up, Cubans get in line to buy food. On top of that, the country is also experiencing food and medicine shortages. People are being forced to wait up to eight hours in line for bread. Add into the mix COVID-19, which has overwhelmed Cuba's hospitals, and frequent power outages. And you can understand why most Cubans have had enough. As for the protests themselves, they kicked off after footage emerged of residents in this tiny Cuban town holding a mini demonstration against the government. And it appears that they were saying what so many other Cubans were thinking. And within days, demonstrations and protests had erupted across the country. And I imagine the Cuban regime has responded pretty quickly to those. Yeah, it has. So when the protests erupted, it sent out special forces, police and plainclothed officers to quash the protests. Protesters were beaten and arrested and then taken to the secret prisons that I mentioned. 
And even now, two weeks after those protests ended, hundreds of Cubans are still missing. Families have posted pictures of their loved ones on social media, pleading for information from anyone who may have seen them. But despite the crackdown, the scale of the protests signals that something may have shifted in Cuba. In an extremely rare admission, in the last few days, Cuba's president issued a quasi-apology for the economic crisis. In a national address overnight, Cuba's president admitting for the first time his government's failings, saying, I accept that we have responsibility in much of this, adding they need to learn from their mistakes. That's led to hope that the protests may prompt the government to liberalise both the economy and the political system to some extent. In fact, some analysts have gone as far as to say that they think the protests could mark the beginning of the end of the Cuban regime as we know it. Yeah, that's huge. It's really rare that we see these protests uh, enjoy so much success like that. But how has the international community responded to all of this? Well, unsurprisingly, the UN has condemned the crackdown and the mass trials. And in the US, Joe Biden has also pledged support for the protesters. We call on the government, government of Cuba, to refrain from violence and our attempts to silence the voice of the people of Cuba. And we're also closely... Biden has also imposed new sanctions on senior Cuban politicians, which is interesting because he promised last year to reverse some of the hardline sanctions put in place by Donald Trump. However, given current events, I think it's unlikely that's going to happen anytime soon. But it would be really worthwhile, I think, watching Cuba more closely in the coming months, as we may see signs of just how much these protests have damaged the Cuban regime. It's currently 98% complete. But now some of the last diplomatic pieces have clicked into place, allowing the controversial Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline to be finished. Well, Josh, what you would have just heard there might have sounded very boring. You see, the US and Germany have come to an agreement on a major gas pipeline in Northern Europe known as Nord Stream 2. And while this might sound like something pretty mundane, there's actually a lot going on under the surface, with the US now lending its support to what is one of the most significant European infrastructure projects to date. Okay, so what makes this project so significant then? Well, natural gas happens to be very, very important to Europe because with our current technology, it's an essential supply for home heating. Obviously, Europe is a very cold continent, so there's a lot of demands for natural gas over the winter and autumn months. This means that natural gas can often make the difference between being able to survive in a warm apartment over winter or being forced to sleep in below freezing temperatures. So this question of energy supply is actually life and death. Hmm, so with control of gas, I imagine, comes political power too. So why was there high-level international diplomacy taking place over this one pipeline? That's a good question. Uh, Crucially, Europe itself has very little in the way of natural gas supplies. So that means that the vast majority of European countries have to import gas from abroad, and nine times out of ten, their provider is Russia. Gazprom is the largest natural gas recovery and delivery company. Gazprom owns the world's largest explored gas reserves, 36 trillion cubic meters. 
That amounts to 17- Russia is actually the world's biggest producer of natural gas, generating more than the next two biggest providers, Qatar and the US combined. So given that this is a resource which literally keeps people alive, and of course keeps governments popular, Russia's near monopolistic control over Europe's gas supply gives Moscow enormous leverage over Brussels. Knowing Moscow, it would certainly use that leverage. So what are some examples of how it's been doing that? Well, Russia has been known to shut off or slow down the gas supply or raise gas prices when it's having a dispute with one of its European neighbours. A natural gas crisis looming over Europe has taken a sharp turn for the worse. A contract dispute between Russia and Ukraine has left several cities without natural gas in the dead of winter. And Russia can do this because the company controlling its gas exports, Gazprom, is state-owned and is run by a number of close allies to Vladimir Putin. But there's a catch, because at the moment, Russian natural gas is transferred to Europe via giant pipelines that run on land. So this means that in order for Russian gas to get to a major customer such as Germany, it has to travel across the territory of countries such as Poland and Ukraine. And of course, many of these Eastern European countries are enemies of Moscow. So, for example, if Russia ever gets into a dispute with, say, Poland and wants to shut down its gas supply over winter, it'll also have to turn off gas supplies to Germany. So the very act of putting pressure on Poland also ends up hurting a major Russian industry. Mm. So the existing system has arguably prevented Moscow from using that power to its fullest extent. How does Nord Stream 2 change that, though? Well, the trick with Nord Stream 2 is that it runs under the Baltic Sea, directly from Russia to Germany. So now Russia can get huge amounts of gas to its major customers without needing Eastern Europe. Russia can now effectively weaponize the pipeline by cutting off supplies to countries like Ukraine while keeping Western European customers supplied. And that's the reason why this project has been so controversial. While countries like Germany, of course, want the pipeline to go ahead in order to secure cheaper gas supplies, the US and Eastern Europe have condemned the project as a blatant attempt at making it easier for Moscow to place pressure on its small neighbours to the West. Earlier this year, the US actually placed sanctions on companies involved in the project, but it now sees the pipeline as inevitable and has given Germany its tacit approval in return for Berlin investing over 200 million euros in energy security in Ukraine, as well as sustainable energy projects across Europe. And what are the impacts of that agreement likely to be? It will now be a lot easier for Moscow to pressure its close neighbours, and that's why the Washington-Berlin deal has attracted fierce criticism in countries such as Poland and Ukraine. We've seen it throughout our season on climate change, energy matters. And while natural gas sounds mundane, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more major crises being triggered thanks to this deal. And on that note, that brings to a close the final wrap-up for this season. Stay tuned for next week's in-depth episode. It's a really interesting one on the way that young people, just like us, are suing governments and businesses to force them to act on climate change. I'll be chatting to Paul Govind, an expert in the area, and Mark McVie, who at the age of 23, took on his super company and won. In the meantime, follow us Global Questions on Instagram or check out the Young Diplomat Society's website. You can leave us feedback or suggest an episode topic. Links are in the episode description. We will see you in season five.